My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is the Technically Speaking Podcast. I sit down with BIPOC designers, entrepreneurs, and technologists. We discuss careers, triumphs, and their resilience, and the why behind their decisions. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to plug our Patreon. If you like what you're listening to and you want to support the podcast, for as low as $3, you can contribute monthly to help support the production of the show. You can contribute today by heading over to patreon.com slash technically speaking HW. I'll also include the link in the show notes. Today, I have the owner of Figure 8 Consulting, Natalie Nixon, on the show, joining us from Philly. Welcome. How are you doing this morning? Hi, Harrison. I'm doing really great, Lee, especially because I'm, I've am i just gotten over COVID. Oh, so what? I'm doing really well. Oh, no. Yes. Was it a, I hope it was a mild and case. I'm, it wasn't too... It was a mild case. It was my first bout with COVID. It felt like a bad flu for a day, yeah. thankfully. I had Labor Day weekend to rest through it. Yeah. So I'm I was going to say, well. timing-wise, at least it sounds good, but it's never a good time to get COVID. No, it's not. Yeah. It's- yeah. Well, hey, we're excited to have you on the show. You've got a really amazing history, and you've been featured on so many publications for your amazing work. But before we get into that, I wanted to start out the show with some icebreakers. I do this with all of my guests. And some of the answers can lead to very interesting stories. So for the first question that I ask all my guests, what is something right now that you are currently obsessed with? Reading more fiction. I grew up a library kid. Mm-hmm. I, my idea of a great afternoon when I was a little girl was just curling up the great book. And I was talking to my project manager and also my husband about this, I think because I did a PhD while working full-time and I did it in four years. And I think I just got burned out from reading and realized about a year ago that while I do read nonfiction just to expand my own work and practice, I need to read more fiction. It's actually something I advise people to do to build their curiosity Mm. and their empathy. So I have dedicated myself to reading more fiction, and I'm going to be starting is it Isabel Allende novel. This isn't fiction, but it's certainly entertaining. I'm also almost finished a Lenny Kravitz memoir. Yeah. So I'm just really interested and looking forward to indulging yeah. in, in a very intentional way to quiet. Yeah, I love that. I feel like there was a point where I got pretty obsessed with nonfiction. And it was like, oh, this feels like work. <laughs> My time off. So exactly. I'm taking that back. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Another yeah. question that I have for you. What is something that you think doesn't get talked about enough? Gosh, there are so many things. I think we are talking about in the current zeitgeist about burnouts mm. and paying a lot of attention to the burn rate and of people's attempt to be productive in this very new way of working. But the part I don't think we're talking about enough of, which is the counterpoint to that, I guess there's a theme here, is the role of rest Mm. and the role of pausing. And to understand that actually is not counter to being more productive, Mm. but in a very counterintuitive way. When we pause, when we step away, when we take time to nourish our minds, our body, our soul, in ways that may feel like you're lollygagging, (laughs) like you aren't doing the air quotes important stuff. It is so essential. And 
that's what I don't think we're spending enough time talking about or allowing each other to. Yeah, you know, that actually made me think about the concept or the construct around work-life balance, right? Because you're, it's almost stated as that it needs to be an equilibrium when you're saying Mm. that's not the case, right? Um, No. And we also treat, when we have these conversations about work-life balance, embedded in those conversations are the dichotomy approach. There's work and then there's mm. life. And I think that because so many more of us are working from home and there's a lot more blurred boundaries there, then the opportunities to think more about work-life integration, not in a way where you're Mm -hmm. burning out, but because I step over my threshold and I'm at a five-second commute between my home office and my bedroom, I have to think more conscientiously about pausing yeah. and breaking in order to be more. Yeah, I love that. In the five second commute. I think one thing I've always, at least I've been talking to folks about, especially as they start thinking about work, is not the idea of necessarily overemphasizing the value that you're going to bring to the job. What are the values and prioritizing in your life and how might work play a role into that along, amongst many other things? So I think that's very relevant to like that idea. How have you been, Absolutely. how have you been handling that? Like you mentioned, like your office is right there, your owner. So how do you take care of all that? I am a very kinesthetic person and learner. And I know this about myself combined with all the neuroscience research and creativity yeah. that we are designed to move. Mm. So I take daydream breaks. Mm. I, which sometimes are 90 seconds long, sometimes they're five minutes long. And the prompts could be, right now it's, it's a beautiful soft rain outside here in Philly. Yeah. So just staring outside the window. It could be an ant crawling on the sidewalk, but allow, it's not meditation. Meditation actually sometimes feels a bit more like work because you have to keep telling yourself to focus and come back to yeah. nothingness or whatever. But daydreaming is actually allowing your mind to wander and to float. So that's one thing I do. Oh. I also have different sorts of timed walks in my neighborhood. So I know, and again, it's, it's all budgeted throughout the day, right. right? So I know sometimes I can only afford a five minute walk. Other times I can afford a 20 minute walk. So I have these different pathways and routes so that I can walk. And if you read people like Thoreau, they talk so much about how so much, if you follow the 80, 20 with the Pareto mm. rule, probably 80% of productivity they needed to be generative and to write and to reconnect ideas was through the walking, was through Mm -hmm. the sense making that we do or ambling throughout the world. So that's another thing I do. I take regular short breaks. I'm also a lifelong dancer. I'm either in hip hop dance classes at the end of the days or I'm in the ballroom studio. So I'm a ballroom is just amazing. So I dance and that's another thing that actually helps me to, it's actually these nice rewards. I think we have to remember that we have to incentivize ourselves and yeah. give our, celebrate when we finish a long jaunt of work and have something mm-hmm. to look forward yeah, to. I love that. Thank you for breaking that down for us. I love that idea of daydreaming. And the first thing I kept in mind is like the thoughts you have while not only walking, but even in the shower, right? Like those moments play yes. a really big role in the creative process. All right. So last icebreaker, and I know I'm going to put you on the spot. You mentioned something around classic and hip hop dance. What do you listen to? Oh, right now, our kitchen on the Alexa app, I'm listening to John Coltrane. 
And also shout out to Philly, which is where I'm from. Yeah. And this is where John Coulter is from. I love pop music. I love Dua Lipa. Mm. I love Megan Thee Stallion. I don't know a ton about rap, although I am of the generation that birthed rap and hip hop. I think that Megan Thee Stallion is, in my opinion, one of the best rappers out here right now. I love the way she rhymes and syncopates and listen yeah. to her voice. And I'm also a big acid jazz devotee. So I like Massive Attack. I like everything but the girl. Yeah. Like that yeah, kind of flow. I love that. So very, that's actually a very eclectic playlist. I feel like I asked this to a number of our guests. I feel like I should do like a technically speaking playlist. You're actually the. Oh, that would be a great idea. You're actually sure. the second person who's had Coltrane on his list. So. Uh, on, on the- you know what would be cool if someone designed and developed a sound cloud version? Yeah. Well, maybe that's a sound cloud. No, sorry. You know, there's word clouds. Yeah. If you input all the conglomeration of all the songs that your guests mm. have been saying, then the certain songs or jobs get greater hit concentration. Yeah. And that would be a, a cool way to generate yeah. a music playlist. Yeah, I would love that. May, maybe it's, there's probably, some, there could be some scientific research behind it. This activates the creative part of your brain. You know, who knows? Maybe. Yeah. We can try it out one of these days. All right. So let's get into the show. I want to get to know a little bit more about you. I love like this quote, but it says, you are known as the creativity whisperer in the C-suite. Take us through what that means and how does creativity play a role at an executive level in your mind? For too long, creativity has not played a conscientious role at the executive level. And that has a lot to do with the ways that people who get to the C-suite have been educated. Mm. So if they've been educated in a, in a way like through an MBA program or through law school or yeah. something like that, then we have very binary ways of thinking about management, about thinking about leadership. And we forget that at the end of the day, organizations are organisms mm -hmm. and they're organisms because they're made of humans who are imperfect, inconsistent and not predictive. And so from my perspective, as I was at the beginning years of building figure eight thinking, getting invited into companies to help them build cultures of innovation, which sometimes was turning into innovation theater yeah. or it wasn't really sustained. I landed on this idea that we were starting in the wrong place and we actually need to start with creativity in order to design sustainable innovation systems in the ways that we work. The challenge, of course, is that I really couldn't, in those days, really lead with creativity because people thought, and I actually hear people say, oh, I'm not creative because I can't <laughs> fill in the blank, paint, yeah. sing, draw, act, dance. Yeah. Or I would overhear memories like, oh, the creatives, air quotes, the creatives will take care of it, mm -hmm. you know, friend when we're done the real important work in print, right? So the important work is the strategy work, the financial modeling, regression analysis, all that stuff. And the creatives tended to be designers or people in marketing and that sort yeah. of thing. And what I instinctively knew to be true is that creativity is something that artists are exceptional at exhibiting and working through. But the best engineers and coders and accountants and lawyers are super creative. Now, this is the definition I've landed. I didn't have the language then mm. five years ago, but, the, but that's what I write about a lot in the creativity yeah. lead. The best of all of those folks are super creative when they're doing this toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. So especially now where we are three years out 
and the beginnings of the COVID-19 pandemic, there will be another interruption sure. and massive disruption. So we need to build a capacity within ourselves and in terms of how we're building organizational culture that's much more adaptive, that is, doesn't need a script, yeah. but is okay with playbook. Right. And so that is what building creative capacity in my work with leaders. Yeah, um, I love that. Well, we'll get into that a little bit more too, because I have a lot of questions around what kind of goes into like that creative practice for these different types of roles. But maybe give us like a brief background about you and how you got to where you are today. <laughs> I have a really diverse and loopy yeah. background. I have a background in cultural anthropology and fashion. And by the time I hit my 30s, I finally was okay with not fitting into a particular lane. I really struggled with that definitely throughout my 20s, where I felt the need to be able to say, I like this silo and I'm only, right. that's what my focus is. But I've really always thrived in multidisciplinary spaces. I think my music playlist also reflects right. that. And I have a background where anthropology equipped, cultural anthropology specifically, really equipped me with a way to ask questions, mm. to observe people. I'm African-American, Gen Xer from the East Coast of the United States from Philly. And so I grew up in a way where I also had to be deeply observant because by the time I was in fourth grade, I was being educated in environments where I was typically the only one, one of a few. And for those of us who find ourselves on the margins like that, you get really astute mm. and A, making other people comfortable with you and B, being a really keen observer of human behavior. So it was a blessing in disguise that I went through those social experiences that were sometimes challenging, but it really cultivated in me a capacity to be curious about other people and to be deeply observant about mm. them. Coupled with my training in cultural anthropology, it was like whammo, it was, it was just dynamite. And then my background in fashion is something that has people who have never worked in fashion either think fashion is glamorous or they think it's frivolous mm. and it's neither. Fashion is a business and it really taught me to appreciate having a financial acumen, appreciate the role of logistics and yeah. tech because uh, I worked as both an entrepreneurial hat designer, then I worked in global sourcing mm. for a division of limited brands. Then took me to live and work in Sri Lanka, wow. Portugal, making bras and panties for the Victoria's Secret account. And the other thing that fashion taught me is to really appreciate the development of when you're building consumer insight to understand the role of beauty mm -hmm. and desire and aesthetics, which healthcare forsakes, tech often forsakes, financial services doesn't get. We're motivated as humans, not only by solo, but we're motivated mm -hmm. by desire and beauty right. and aesthetics. So those sorts of things I bring, I carry forward into my work. I was a professor for 16 years wow. and I was a very entrepreneurial academic. So the first 10 years I taught the business of fashion and the last six years I created and launched an executive MBA program called the Strategic Design wow. MBA, the integrated design thinking, how people learn strategy, leadership, branding, finance, et cetera. And I started my company, so you're thinking as a side hustle, yeah. 
in 2015 mm. and then looked up a year later and realized I was having more fun with my side hustle. And by 2017, I decided to resign from academia. I've not looked back. Wow. And what's amazing and special about this moment in my life and my work is that all of those divergent threads yeah. have now converged to be super helpful. Yeah. Was that something that you were consciously working towards or was it like once you had your agency, you were like, oh, snap, like, yeah. It's more of a snatch. I went to gosh, I, I've never had a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. I really have built my work around following my intuition and acting on it, yeah. even when it's terrifying. Yeah. So it really, you know, uh, what I always recommend to people is to prototype yeah. that thing that you think you're really interested in. And what I, by having figure thing is a side hustle mm. or good two years, I was really prototyping and learning what I'm actually good at, yeah. what I'm not so good at, what do clients actually need? How do I figure that out? And so by the time I decided mm. to move on from academia, I had built a reputation. I had versioning small, but versioning practice. Practice, and I was able to offer something that was, that yeah. was pretty You unique. spoke about intuition, right? And I want to connect the dots here. Would you say you you gain more confidence in your intuition through practice of some of this these ideas that you had over time? Or is this just something you're like, you know what, I'm going to blindly follow? I think there's been different practices in my life sure. that have helped me to be brave about elementary for so i've already referenced dance and dance mm -hmm. is an art form requires you to be deeply embodied yeah. and to pay attention to pay attention to how you feel to pay attention to have your effect on others mm. and so that already was helping me to be aware of it and because i i'm actually quite uncomfortable with linear five-year plan yeah. so my fallback was to really sit with my intuition now that doesn't mean that the answer the signal was always super bright and loud and clear all of us know that the way intuition works is sometimes it can be quite murky the cool thing about intuition is that it's like a sonar it's like a muscle it's like a radar. So the more we use it, the stronger and clearer it gets. And so for me, it, it was much more a kind of, I, I just love this idea of sense making. It felt like someone was groping in the dark and finding my way through, but I would really pay attention to those signals. I would pay attention to what people seem to be I'll give you an example. The way I define creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve mm. problems. I tinkered with these ideas for a good, it was really over a three-year period of time that I was building out this ecosystem of creativity in the way that I now explain right. it. And the way I would start in terms of the way I would use my intuition is I would have a meeting at a Fortune 500 company and I was very self-conscious about what I'm taking seriously and making sure I sound impressive enough. And I also wanted to understand like what this potential client's appetite would be for this body of work that I want to experiment on with them in a collaborative, co-creative way. And so I would always be initially at the last five minutes of the mm. meeting. And I would say something like, there is this other approach that I've been using with some of my other clients, which was a lie at that time, where we've been exploring these ideas around wonder and rigor. And I would just see their body language shift. They would relax. Mm. They would lean into the table. They would say, what do you mean by that? Or say more about that. Oh, that reminds me of X, Y, Z. And that's when I started knowing I, I was on to something. Mm. I, I wasn't brave or courageous enough. I wouldn't lead with it initially yeah. because it would just sound so wonky and <laughs> wonder. Who talks about wonder on, in the C-suite? Yeah. But now that I've built a 
body of work that connects the dots between creativity and business ROI, I am able to lead with it. But that's an example of how we have to intuit our way forward and making sure things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, take us through your agency. So it's called Figure Eight. One, how did you get the name? And two, what are the types of projects that you tend to work on? Yes, it's called Figure Eight Thinking. And I got the name in kind of a, a kind of a thunderbolt way. My husband John is an attorney, and he is an executive compensation attorney, and started out as an ERISA tax benefits mm. law guy. And he was the one actually who first encouraged me to formalize my side hustle because yeah. he was like, "Nat, this is like a thing. Like you keep getting invited to do these projects." I was like, "Yeah, I don't know." He was like, "You should formalize it." I was like, "Okay." And finally, he was like, "Listen, I keep asking what's gonna be the name. I have to go in tomorrow, and I want to finish your LLC work." And I was going back and forth between different names and ideas, but I landed on Figure Eight Thinking Number One because I've already mentioned that I'm a very kinesthetic yeah. learner, mm-hmm. and Figure Eight is about movement, yeah. if you think about ice skating. I also liked the what building a figure eight connotes. It's about the build. It's about revisiting yeah. an idea, building out, and then coming back. I like yeah. that. Very integrative. And I and the word thinking, maybe figure eight probably was already taken. And but the word thinking, it, it's so interesting how I again that I was a bit shy about. I was a slowly recovering academic. And I know that it's a 50-50 chance you've got that some people are impressed with a PhD and some people are really, oh, PhDs. What do they know about real life? But I now fully embrace and own that. One of my superpowers is my ability to help people who are stuck Mm. or in kind of laggard industries rethink about the way they think, to think about the way they think. And the reason that matters is because so many people in their work are churning. They never pause to really think about the way they're thinking. And if you don't pause to think about the way you've been thinking about an opportunity or a Mm. challenge, you will never reframe. And if you never reframe, you'll never actually innovate. You'll never either incrementally or exponentially, right? So what I go in and do is to help people think differently so that Mm. they can behave differently and that eventually there's culture change. So the figure eight thinking piece is what's, that's what's all wrapped up in that. that. I love that. And what is the type of work that you're doing when you're working with your clients? So the primary work that I've started, there's two strings of my work. One is global keynote speaking and the other is advisory yeah. work. And in the keynote speaking, I'm getting hired across sectors yeah. around the world to do two things, to re-energize and invigorate with new mental models and to leave people with practical ways that they could start to implement yeah. What I'm sharing around future of work, around new ways of teaming, new ways of working in these hybrid modern offices, whatever the, the topical areas, mm-hmm. ways they could implement what I'm sharing about by the end of the day, the next day, by the end of the week. In my advisory work, there are two streams of the advisory work. So one is, so I love ambiguity. Yeah. I love helping strategic leadership teams figure out what's our next, what's our purpose, what's the business that we should be in versus the business we've been churning in. And so I design foresight studios for 
strategic leadership teams to help them think through those sorts of questions. Again, to, to give them a very strategic way to think about the way they can yeah. think it. And we literally, in the way I designed these foresight studios, we go through a lot of wonder and we also converge into a lot of rigor. So I always like to gift my clients with an actionable roadmap. Yeah. Okay, what's it going to take for us to operationalize this, to make this real? What are the people, the processes, the situations that we need to be considering? And what needs to be and budget and newer refurbished skill sets that we need to activate to make this happen? And so what needs to be placed tomorrow? What's one thing we can start doing tomorrow? Yeah a week from now, a month from now to the next quarter. So the way that I have built out these frameworks is also the way I like to design these foresight studios. And that's kind of the B2B level. On a B2C level, when people as individuals come to me when they're feeling a bit stuck, and this could be in a work-related challenge that they're having. It could also, sometimes it's, it's a bit more personal. And we know now that the personal and professional yeah. blurred. I have picked my brain sessions. So those are the two ways that I help people is through the speaking and it's through the advisory work. And the questions are always this variation of a theme around getting people through these very ambiguous moments, getting organizations through these very ambiguous yeah. moments. Another thing that you have is is your book called The Creativity Leap. Maybe give the listeners a brief overview about that and what motivated you to do that. Is that kind of an extension of the work that you do now? It definitely is. So the Creativity League came out in 2020 and the subtitle is Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation and Intuition at mm. Work. And the basic premise of the book is that creativity is not a nice to have, not woo woo. Creativity is a must right. have. And I then go on to explain why and then how. So every chapter concludes with very practical ways that you can act on some of the ideas that I go through in the chapter as an individual, but also at work with your team. And I wrote the book because as a speaker, mm. I really use my keynotes to prototype ideas. Right. And as I was prototyping this new way of, of figuring out how to do the advisory work of getting create, building the creative capacity of leaders, I would prototype these concepts and these frameworks in my speaking. And people would come to me at the end of the talks and say, that was great. Where can I read more about mm. that? And which I got enough of those prods at the end of the key to where I was like, okay, I need to write about this in one centralized location. So that was the big push for writing. The yeah. Yeah. And you, you also have a supplementary LinkedIn course that goes into uh, to some of that as well. And shout yes. out to LinkedIn. I, I actually kind of shout out to LinkedIn. I was really excited. To, I was really impressed with the, with the production help and support I got because I did the whole recording in yeah. my home office with my project manager. So it was all virtual and it was, I'm really busy. Yeah. So how did you get into that whole sort of LinkedIn learning course and maybe take us through what a production like that is? The way that I got into being invited to develop a LinkedIn course is because Jesse Hempel, who hosts a LinkedIn podcast called Hello Monday, interviewed me mm -hmm. during the launch period of my book, The Creativity. Yeah. And circled back to me about a year later and said, I think that you will be, your content is really rich. So I think it would be really great if, if you talk to some of our folks at LinkedIn Learning to develop a course. And I said, that, that would be amazing. Thank you so much for recommending me. And nothing much happened and a few months passed by. And then I got a follow-up from Allison Hankey at LinkedIn Learning. And she has been amazing. I guess she's my content. I forget all the technical names that LinkedIn uses, but. She's been my Sherpa. Yeah. She's been my guide. And we landed on the name of my courses, Lead with Inquiry, 
improvisation intuition because mm. she really liked my three eye model, wow. which is inquiry, improv, and intuition. And she thought that would be a very practical and helpful way to help people act on and activate and operationalize what I talk about. In terms yeah, of creativity. I love that. I love that. And one of the things that I really get out of this is all of your experiences have really culminated into everything that you do. Like you can even see it in terms of the three eyes, right? That in dance, you talk about like the intuition yes. that you've developed over time. And obviously a big part of design and the creative process is really being able to inquire and asking those questions and be curious. So it's amazing yes. just kind of how those are foundational to being successful, not only within the creative field, but throughout. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. It's all, it, as my mom used to tell us as we were growing up, all learning is interconnected. You know, there's everything that we do, yeah. whether it's waiting tables or leading a team, it's relevant and we can interweave it into our current work. And yeah. Work. Look, is there any sort of advice that you want to leave for the listeners before we wrap up on the show? I just want to encourage people to bring a full circle back to the top of our conversation, Harrison, mm -hmm. to give themselves the permission to pause yeah. so that they can regenerate and truly flourish in their work. We, our brains needed, our bodies needed. We need time. We our, our neural synapses don't come alive only in the frontal neocortex. There's all these really groovy, deeper recesses of the brain that only get activated when we're do not doing that full cognitive load, but we're allowing ourselves to take in the environment. So mm. that's what I want to encourage people to do. Yeah. How can folks find you on the internet? They can find me by going to figure8thinking.com. That's F-I-G-U-R-E, the number eight thinking.com and they can follow me on LinkedIn and also start checking out my Fast Company articles. I'm a new-ish contributor to Fast awesome. Company. So magazine. we'll also add writing to that amazing list of talents that you have. <laughs> and for the folks listening, we'll include these links in the show notes and in the description. But Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the show and in sharing your wisdom and your practice. Excited for folks to really dig in and I might get that book for my team actually. Well, I would be so grateful for that. And I would love to hear what the response is. And I'll send you a discussion guide. And if awesome. you ever want to circle back with yeah. your team on that, let me know. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a real pleasure. Well, that concludes the show. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge way to show your support. And it really helps us reach more people and grow our following. By the way, we release a new episode every two weeks. But in the meantime... You can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube at Technically Speaking HW. Again, thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. This has been a production of Technically Speaking Media.